2: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Angela Whitehorn is my co-host. And tonight we have Dr. R. Scott Clark with us, and he is a pastor in the URC and a professor at Westminster Seminary, California. Thank you so much for joining us. So last week we had Chris Cahillon about the new book, that you guys, that you both contributed to about reformed identity, and Angela and I have both read it, so we know that you and Chris take different positions in the book. So we we wanted to ask you, even though we kind of know your answer from an article on Heidelblog, if you think reform does have an objective definition, and what is it?
1: Uh, hi, great to be with you. And yes, it does. It, uh, it has since at least since the middle of the sixteenth century, and um, that that definition was well known, well understood by lots of people in lots of different language groups and nations um, all, all over the world until about last week. so yeah <laughs> I, I, I do disagree with Chris, uh, who, as I understand his argument, um, since the reformed have. Uh, changed, for example, their view, most of us anyway, not not all of us everywhere, but particularly Americans and, and some others have uh, changed their view of the way, for example, the uh, state ought to relate to the church, or the church ought to relate to the state. That's such a, a giant change in his view, I think, that uh, we really can't talk meaningfully of Reformed uh, in the same sense as we w- as we would have uh, in the 16th or 17th century. And my response is, um, so much of what we confess it's certainly true that uh most of us do not want the state to put heretics to death or to enforce religious orthodoxy and uh, i'm in america and i'm not ashamed of that i mean I, i think the american solution is essentially correct um and it's not even just an american solution it was abraham kuyper's solution at the turn of the 19th century, early 20th century, he too said, look, if I have to believe in the state punishment of religious heretics in order to be reformed, I don't want to be reformed. But he went on to say that, in fact, it's not really necessary or essential to our confession. And I don't think that's, I think he's correct. I agree with Kuyper um, that I think our forefathers, uh, if they looked at our revisions, they may or may not disagree or agree with us. I don't know. I mean, that's purely speculative. But if we explain, look, uh, at the history of religious warfare and look at the relative peace with which we've been able to live with one another in the new world um, since you know, the, the 18th, early 18th century, uh, that has something to commend it, and, um, and, and we've asked the state to sort of stay out of those religious disputes, um, and in fact, uh, look at the early church, we would say, at the 2nd century church, 3rd century, 4th, 5th, Century, but you know, it was centuries before the state began to enforce religious orthodoxy. And in fact, there was no state enforcing religious orthodoxy uh, in the apostolic period. At least the Christians weren't asking the state to do that. So we have lots of precedent for it. And uh, I think we can make a good argument for it. And I think they would understand. We would say, look, our, our uh, doctrine of scripture has, is unchanged, our doctrine of God is unchanged, our doctrine of man, of salvation, the church, sacraments, last things. Those things are all unchanged, so I can't see how changing in effect one part of our ethics um, is a fundamental, such a fundamental default on the reformed confession that there, that we can't talk about a, a reformed confession anymore. And so, uh, I, frankly, I, I, I'm entirely unpersuaded by this argument uh, because the, you know, I teach the three forms of unity. I've taught courses on the Westminster Standards uh, at the seminary level, and and I'm well. Uh, familiar with, you know, a, a wide range, a wide array of um, Reformed confessions from uh, dozens of locations and languages and peoples, and over a long period of time, the 16th century, 17th century particularly, and a little bit beyond, and uh, we all confessed essentially the same thing. Uh, the consciousness in the 16th and 17th centuries was that we have a, a unified confession, that there really is such a thing as Reformed. And um, so I, uh, I, I'm uh, entirely persuaded that there is a Unified Reformed Confession, and you can find it in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, in the Belgian Confession, and the Canons of Dort. And, and in that period, uh, all of those uh, people who were involved in those documents from the 17th century looking backward uh, saw a Unified Confession. and uh, And I think even some of the Divisions that people think they see between them are really more uh, of a misunderstanding of the documents than they are genuine misunderstanding or genuine tensions between the documents. For example, the Sabbath. Um, We're just talking about that today with some students. And a lot of what's said about the so called continental view of the Sabbath and the English or the Puritan view of the Sabbath is frankly not very persuasive or particularly thoughtful as I see things. So in other words, there is a Reformed view of the Sabbath, even. that That's where people think they see a really big difference. And and I think if you really examine it and you really understand what people were talking about and what the various terms mean, uh, the differences really start to melt away.
2: Wow, that was helpful. Probably,
1: um, probably more than you wanted.
2: No, oh,
0: that was great. <laughs> Do you think, um, then, that the criticism that, that the term Reformed hasn't stayed the same since the 16th, 17th century. Do you think that that's fair? Do you think that it's really true that the goalposts have moved?
1: No, the goalposts haven't moved at all. That's what I'm, that's my argument that, I mean, the, the heart of it is because the only thing you really point to is that we no longer believe in a state-enforced religious orthodoxy. And so the question is, is that such a change that we can't talk about reformed in the same sense anymore as we did in the 16th and 17th century? And I just don't find that persuasive at all, in the least, because mm-hmm. I, I think, um, we changed our ethics in a number of ways and we've uh, we don't accept for example um, a widely held view in the 17th century that the earth um, that, that, that the um, sun revolves around the earth we used to be geocentrists and there were people for example um, oh his name escapes me now uh, oh Lambert Dano uh, who taught in uh, Leiden in the late 16th century or, or early 17th century and uh, Denoe argued, uh, wrote a physics defending uh, geocentrism. Uh, well, oh, nobody today is a geocentrist. Uh, does that mean we're not reformed anymore? Well, no. Geocentrism was never essential to being reformed. It was always accidental. And, uh, and it, as it turned out, it uh, turned out to be wrong. And most uh, Americans and other people in the modern period have concluded that state-enforced religious orthodoxy from the Justinian period forward was a mistake. It was a long mistake. We did it for a long time, but it was never essential to what we confessed you know get, getting rid of it didn't change our as i say our view of scripture uh, god man salvation church sacraments any of those things they're all the same uh, mm-hmm. we believe the same confession about all of those things and um, and so our our ethics are necessarily are going to change over time and um i don't think changing our view of the state um You know, state enforced religious orthodoxy, and and we don't even saying that we don't disagree with everything that our forefathers said about the state. We still believe that the the judicial laws, for example, Westminster twenty one four, the judicial laws expired with the state of national Israel. We still believe that Uh, the theonomists don't believe it, the theocrats don't believe it, Um, but we we still believe it. I believe it. I'm, I'm sure Chris believes it. So. Uh, we haven't even uh, discarded all of it. We just have discarded the state enforcement of religious orthodoxy. I just don't think that's a substantial change to the reformed confession.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so do the Westminster standards and the three forms teach the same doctrine? Um, th- that's sort of one of the um, arguments that seems to be made, being made on the Cahee side is that that there isn't a reformed confession because they don't all teach the same doctrine. like. Does the Belgic contain an ordo salutis error? Those sorts of questions.
1: Yeah, they, they certainly do teach the same doctrine. And and no, the Belgic Confession uh, 24, for example, does not have an error in the ordo salutis. If, if we know uh, the 16th and 17th centuries, and particularly the 16th century, uh, w- the question here is about uh, uh, what does Belgic 24 mean uh, when it uh, speaks of uh, regeneration? In, in the way it speaks about regeneration and faith. And here, this is just a simple misunderstanding of uh, of 16th century uh, Reformed theology. So, uh, Belgic 24 is about uh, sanctification. And it's uh, Belgic 24 says that, sanctific- that sanctification leads to, as it says, regeneration. And that would be a problem if regeneration in uh, 1561 meant what it meant uh, in 1619 but it doesn't. Um, So again, this is where history helps us. Uh, In the 16th century, Reformed theologians regularly used words like regeneratio and renovatio, renovation, to mean a sanctification. uh, That is the gradual uh, conformity of the believer to Christ, the putting of the old man to death and the making alive of the new by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's what I mean by progressive sanctification. And that's all regeneration tended to mean. It didn't always mean that. You know, we had to look at it in context. There were times where in the 16th century, it might mean the sovereign act of God to regenerate someone, that is to bring them from death to life. And that's the way we used it most of the time at Dort. And, uh, where, and that's the way we tended to use it after Dort. We have to remember when we were using this language before the Arminian crisis, uh, you know, we weren't facing the same challenges. And, and then after the Arminian crisis, or in light of it, we had to uh, you know, adapt the way we used words and, and maybe change, you know, a little bit the sense in which we use them. And so from the Arminian crisis forward, we tended to use regeneration uh, to refer to that moment of awakening from death to life, whereas prior to the Arminian crisis, we tended to use it as much to talk about sanctification as the moment of awakening from death to life. So no, there, the short answer is there's no fundamental disagreement between the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, and the Westminster Standards. And I know that because the writers of the Westminster Standards themselves didn't see any fundamental disagreement between the two. They, they saw them as being essentially the same thing. They saw themselves, the, the writers, the Westminster Divines, as they were revising the articles of the Anglican Church um, and then set out to um, you know, make a new document, they had all been educated in the Heidelberg Catechism. They were all well aware of the Belgic Confession and, and deeply aware of the canons of Dort and the synod of Dort. And they didn't see themselves as doing something fundamentally different at all. They were simply uh, confessing the same faith in a somewhat different situation, uh, with, with specific facing specific problems that weren't necessarily faced in the same way uh, by the Belgic churches and, and by the Synod of Dort.
2: Well, thank you. That was really, really helpful. So for those who don't know, we had you on probably a year and a half ago now to discuss covenant theology, and we're going to link that episode in the episode notes here. But could you just— I'm
0: sure
1: sure it's riveted in everyone's memory. (laughs) Remember, it's, a, it's like a bad experience, a dream of, of which they cannot be read. So, I yeah. don't know
0: about everybody, but mine at least it was very helpful to me in oh. uh, my reforming journey. So, yeah. we're hoping to build on that. And you know, we do have our we have a, a wide range of listeners and um, a lot of Baptists who are who may be reforming. And um, we do get a lot of questions about infant baptism, and so. We're hoping to um, scratch the itch and answer a lot of questions tonight.
1: Well, let's scratch away.
0: <laughs> so can you um, start with just a brief recap on what is covenant? You know, I, I'm thinking right now about this was sort of the heart of your argument in your essay in the Reformed Identity book is that the meat of what we believe is our covenant theology. And that is sort of what drives everything that we're going to talk about. So give us a little brief intro to covenant theology.
1: Uh, covenant theology is simply a way of talking about how God relates to his people, how he promises to save them, and uh, what he expects as a consequence of that free, unconditional salvation. And so that, that's the, the covenant of grace. Um, uh, we say that uh, God has—sometimes uh, our writers have said there's one covenant with two aspects, and sometimes they've said there were two covenants, and I don't really mind which way we speak, but um, in the covenant broadly— Uh, God enters into a relationship with us and he promises us eternal blessedness. In the covenant of works, it's conditioned upon our obedience and our personal meeting of the terms of the covenant of works. And in the covenant of grace, it's offered freely uh, through faith alone on the condition that someone else has met the terms of the covenant of works for us. So the covenant of works Uh, Is law and the covenant of grace is gospel. And there are these two covenants in Scripture, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. In the garden, God came to Adam and he said, Listen, you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or sorry, you can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, So there was a tree of life, as it were, and a tree of death. And uh, most of our writers have thought that Adam was eating of the tree of life. And had he met the terms of the covenant of works or the covenant of life, or the covenant of nature, it's had different names. We'll call it the covenant of works. Had he met the terms of the covenant of works and obeyed God and loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and his neighbor as himself, chiefly Eve, and all of us in Adam, right? Had he met that term and had he loved us by abstaining from the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have entered into blessedness and, and we with him. Um, the covenant of grace is... That covenant whereby God uh, came to Adam after the fall, and He said, "Even though you've broken my covenant, and even though uh, uh, you know I have to now exclude you from the garden, and even though by rights I should I should kill you," um, you know, He said, "The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die." And of course, they did. They died spiritually, and um, we're all now, as a consequence, born into sin and death. Um, we, we sin because we're sinners, and we're born. Uh, Paul says, uh, corrupted, and David says in Psalm 51, uh, "In sin did my mother conceive me. We're, uh, we're all born dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And so the only way we can save, be saved now is by uh, the covenant of grace. And God uh, came to us after the fall, and he said, uh, I will send my son, uh, the, the seed of the woman, and the, the, the serpent will strike his heel, and, and the, the son of the woman will crush his head, in Genesis 3, uh, 15. So uh, you have two covenants, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and the history of redemption is in some ways the outworking of these two principles. They continue to be reiterated in various ways. Uh, The law and the gospel continue to be published and and reiterated uh, over and over again. Uh, So we first see a covenant explicitly in Genesis 6. God makes a covenant of salvation. It's a covenant of grace with Noah and his family. Uh, Then we see a covenant of grace made with Abraham, Uh, has different aspects in it in genesis 12 15 and 17 um and that covenant of grace continues to operate throughout scripture and then comes the mosaic covenant which is in some ways an administration of the covenant of grace the the gracious promise of salvation continues and in some ways it's an administration of the covenant of works because the law is restated under moses and um for example leviticus 18 basically says uh, do this and live and um so that law principle gets restated as a reminder to the Israelites. And, and as the rabbis counted them, 613 laws were added and um, uh, to remind the Israelites you know, in every area of their life that they were uh, under judgment, in sin by nature, and needed a savior. So the sacrifices pointed them to Christ. Uh, the ceremonial laws pointed them to Christ. The civil laws pointed them to Christ. Now there, and so the Old Testament was a giant sermon illustration, a bloody, graphic, violent sermon illustration that kept pointing to Christ for, for 1,500 years, and 500 years before that, of course, was Abraham, and that's pointing to Christ, and and whoever knows, you know, who knows how long before that was the flood, and that pointed to Christ, and then it all, it all sort of comes apart at the end after David, you know, the Davidic covenant points to Christ, and then the prophets are pointing to Christ, and then finally Christ comes and fulfills all of those types and shadows. And we have the new covenant, which in Reformed theology is the new administration of the Abrahamic covenant, and at the death of Christ, the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled and and goes away. So all those ceremonies and all those judicial laws go away, and now we have the Abrahamic covenant without the types and shadows, with the reality uh, that came with Christ. And so um, circumcision and uh, Passover are replaced by, in very broad terms, it's a very down and dirty sketch. Uh, sir, uh, you know, all the sacrifices and, and the Passover and and uh, so forth and circumcision, all all are fulfilled uh, by Christ and replaced by baptism and the Lord's Supper. But it's fundamentally the same covenant. That's why uh, Paul says that Abraham is the father of all who believe, and Hebrews wants to contrast, um, you know, the new covenant not with abraham but with moses right uh the the covenant i will make in those days uh, says jeremiah uh it will not be like in 31 31 through 33 uh, or 33 31 through 33 sorry uh, will not be like the covenant i made with your forefathers when when i led them out of egypt by the hand so the contra- the contrast between the new covenant uh is between the new covenant and um Moses, not not Abraham, and that's the same uh, in Hebrews seven, eight, and nine and ten. It's the contrast there uh, between uh, Moses and and the um, and the new covenant. And so it is in 2 Corinthians three. So that's why I say we're under the Abrahamic covenant without the types and shadows. That's why uh, Peter says in Acts two two thirty nine, "For the promise is to you and to your children." He says to all those Jewish men, and uh, they all understand exactly what he's saying. It makes perfect sense. And and, uh, because he's invoking the same Abrahamic covenant that they had believed for 2000 years. Well, there's your uh, sort of your overview of covenant theology that (laughs) unifies all, all of scripture, right? So covenant of works, covenant of grace.
2: You, I think, started to answer what was going to be my next question. Where does baptism fit into our understanding of covenant theology? And of course, Baptists, have a different slightly different understanding of covenant theology or maybe not slightly but where does baptism fit into this
1: well baptism has this roughly the same role in the new covenant that circumcision had in the old covenant and so somebody who was uncircumcised like abraham as an uh, older man uh, gets circumcised as a as a believer and uh, and then his children are to receive the sign and the seal of the of entrance into the visible covenant community and, and that's what God instituted in Genesis 17, right? By the eighth day, your, your son has to be circumcised. In the new covenant, right, uh, all those types and shadows are done away with. Circumcision was a bloody sign, looking forward to, uh, anticipating, pointing to uh, Christ's bloody circumcision, not as an infant, but on the cross. And we know this from Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Right? Uh, Paul in Colossians two eleven and 12 is trying to uh, explain the nature of the Christian life and Christian sanctification. And he, to illustrate that, he first talks about uh, circumcision, which is the cutting away of the flesh, you know, the old man, and, and a ritual death is what it is. That's what circumcision was. It was a kind of a ritual death, and that's why it points to Christ. Then he mentions the cross right? Because circumcision points to the cross. And then having mentioned the cross, he points to baptism because baptism looks back to the cross. It's an unbloody rite of initiation into the visible covenant community. And so we know they're linked there in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, because it's explicit. And so those uh, that passage in Romans 6 also helps us understand the, the nature of, of circumcision and baptism as, as uh, linked by the cross and by their identification with the cross and as pointing to death, so one is a type and a shadow looking forward, and one is a a sign and seal of the reality that has come in Christ that looks backward. One is prospective, one is retrospective, and so we do the same. We baptize those who've never been baptized, and we uh, whether as adults as new converts and or as children of believers, right? And we, we the believers come to us who are members of the church, and we initiate their children, just as Abraham did, into the visible covenant community. And so it's 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 not, not radical at all. It's it's unusual somewhat in America to evangelicals because America is largely a Baptist country, but historically that's the mainstream historical Christian understanding of baptism. Uh, it was certainly the understanding of baptism held by the Protestant reformers in the 16th century and 17th century. So it's a little bit odd maybe to American Baptists, you know, of which there are 60 million and there's maybe only 500,000 of us uh, Presbyterian and reformed folk in all of North America. So we look like the odd ducks out, but in the 16th century um, everybody was a pedo Baptist and held something like the view I just uh, described in broad terms. And, um, and it would be the Baptists who would be the odd ones out.
0: Hmm. Um. You know, talking about how baptism roughly replaces circumcision, we know that only males were circumcised in ancient Israel. Can you help us understand why, if baptism replaces circumcision, why then are both males and females now baptized?
1: Yeah, that's one of the differences between the, the types and shadows and the reality. In, in the reality, uh, we have. Um, all kinds of people being initiated into the into the covenant community. Uh, after all, only Jews largely were circumcised, right, into the visible covenant community, and there there were some strangers, some aliens, but but generally only Jews were, were circumcised. And now in the new covenant, all kinds of people are being included into the covenant of grace. Um, so in uh, under Moses, there were Jews and Gentiles, and there were males and females, and barbarians and Scythians, slave and free. In Christ now, there is no barbarian or um, Greek or slave or free or or Scythian or male or female. All those distinctions are not done away with relative to creation, but they're done away with relative to redemption. And Hmm. so uh, we're all now included. And that's one of the great benefits of being in the new covenant. Uh, We live in the time of fulfillment. All the bloody types and shadows are done with all the exclusions are done with done away with paul says in ephesians 2 that that the dividing wall has been broken down which is a great thing right um so um one of the dividing walls that's been broken down is the dividing wall uh in a sense that kept uh, females from receiving the sign and seal of initiation into the visible covenant community and the, the um exclusion of females from the sign of initiation obviously was a matter of biology um uh, but it was also a matter of typology. There was a kind of family uh, federal headship as part of the types and shadows that just doesn't operate anymore, um, and so that's that's all been done away with. There, we don't have males as federal heads, representative heads of households anymore in the same way that we had under the types and and shadows. And all of that again was intended to point to Christ, and that's all been fulfilled.
2: Mm-hmm. So, is it? do you think it's more helpful to think of it as covenant baptism rather than infant baptism? Sure.
1: I mean, that's, I think that's exactly right. We, we can say both. Uh, we baptize infants because we believe in a covenant. We believe that God has said, I will be a God to you, believer, and to your children. Um, and, and so, Peter invokes that promise for the promise— is to you and your children. And my Baptist friend says, well, that's a reference back to Joel. And I say, fine, what's Joel talking about? Well, he's <laughs> simply restating the Abrahamic promise in prophetic idiom, but it's the same promise. The fundamental promise is, I will be a God to you and to your children. And in the in the prophets, it, that state, that promise gets restated in a variety of different ways, highlighting different aspects in hyperbolic language, right? Your young men will dream dreams and so forth and then see visions. Um, And of course, Peter says, all of that's come true. Well, it didn't literally come true, right? Uh, But Peter says, what you're seeing here at Pentecost is the fulfillment of what God promised in Joel. So we have to be careful to let Peter, let Acts define uh, what he's doing with Joel and what Joel means. Um, So when those uh, men at Pentecost Representing thousands of people, maybe 20,000 people. Um, so, those are because those are heads of households that are being counted at the feast. Um, uh, when P- When Peter says that, they understood exactly what he was saying, right? If you're going to overturn the Abrahamic promise, I know, you know, that it used to be the way that God would enter into a, a, you know, be a God to you and to your children. That used to be the way it was. But this is the new covenant. It's a spiritual covenant. It's an eschatological covenant. And so that's not the way things are anymore. To say, for the promises to you and to your children and to the Gentiles, right, to everyone else I'm going to call and, and bring into this covenant of grace, that's a terrible way to communicate it. Because there's only one way that those men would have understood that, and that was to say, yes, the Abrahamic promise is still in force.
0: You know, for me, coming to an understanding of covenant baptism, a big key was understanding Reformed sacramentology and how that informs our understanding of baptism. And so, um, can you talk for a minute about who's speaking during a baptism? What's going on? Isn't baptism just our public testimony?
1: Okay good I wonder where you were going but yeah that's a, that, okay that's a great question well I'll tell you who's speaking in in uh, baptism it's god uh, the, so uh, baptism is the sacrament or is the gospel made visible and and that's what uh, people need to understand uh, baptism is not in the first instance our pledge to god it is in the first instance his pledge to us it's a restatement of his covenant promise i will be a god to you and to your children after you um, that's why, for example, uh, there were household baptisms in Acts 16. Uh, that's why uh, Paul says, without any embarrassment, in 1 uh, Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, that uh, all of the Israelites were baptized into Moses, by the way. Um, and there were infants in that one to three million people that went across uh, the Red Sea. So there was infant baptism, by the way, under Moses. Right? They were They were baptized into Moses and probably sprinkled. Right as they went through on dry ground in, in the Red Sea. So uh, in baptism, the Lord comes and He promises and He says, "I love you. Uh, I'm embracing you. I receive you who believe, and I'm making a you, know, you believing parent, and I'm uh, promising to you that I'll be a God to your child, and I'm making this promise to you. I'm not saying when your child's going to come to faith, but I'm promising uh, in in general terms that th- this is a sign." of what I do for my elect, and I want you to put this sign on your children, and I want you to catechize your children, I want you to pray with your children, I want you to, to take them to worship, I want you to nurture them, and through that process, um, I'm going to bring my elect to new life and to true faith. So it's God speaking, and we respond by saying, I do, and thank you, and I will, uh, but it's God making the promises and God coming to us. Uh, that's why we call the, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, we call them the gospel, Made visible God's promises.
2: Our view of baptism, and I think some people, when I know when I first came to start understanding Reformed theology, and I was listening to the White Horse in summer of 1994, and they talked about baptism, and I was horrified that they were talking about infant <laughs> baptism because I hadn't come across Protestants baptizing their infants. And right away I'm thinking that's Catholic. And can you explain how our view is different than the Catholic view or the Lutheran? view
1: sure in the roman view uh, baptism does what it does because it is what it is and so uh, uh, they have a phrase for that Uh, they say by the working it is worked in other words as soon as the priest administers baptism it necessarily does something and not just initiates people visibly into the church but actually washes away their sin right it justifies them we don't believe that the scriptures don't teach that Uh, circumcision never justified anyone read the book of galatians Paul's whole argument is, you people think that you're something because you're circumcised. Um, Well, if you think that you're something because you're circumcised and you're going to present yourself to God on the basis of your circumcision, you're in a lot of trouble is what he says. Um, So that doesn't work. And we disagree with our Lutheran friends and also the federal visionists that are in and around Reformed churches that say that baptism necessarily regenerates you or necessarily unites you to Christ or justifies you or makes you elect or any of those things. Um, we disagree with that. We don't confess that. The Scriptures don't teach that. So in broad terms, we reject baptismal regeneration, that baptism affects new life by the application of water. Again, that's not what Scripture teaches. Circumcision never regenerated anyone. Scripture says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. They were both circumcised. Uh, one was, was regenerate and elect, and the other was not. Uh, Judas was uh, circumcised. He wasn't regenerated. There were lots of baptized people um, who uh, who were not regenerated? Uh, th- think of the two who were killed in uh, Acts five. They were both baptized. Uh, they were not regenerated. So um, that that simply isn't true biblically. It isn't true practically. And we certainly don't teach that. So the reform view of baptism is that it's God's uh, ordained sign of what He has promised to do for His elect, and that the benefits of Christ are received by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone, it's simply the sign of what God has promised to do, and it's the seal, and it's a seal to those who believe. So those who believe can look back and say, I am baptized, and just as surely as I'm baptized, so surely will I receive what God has promised to those who believe. And it's a sign in that it illustrates what God does for uh, his uh, elect and for those who believe. He washes away their sin, he gives them new life, not through baptism, but by grace alone alone. Uh, Through faith alone and Christ alone.
2: I'll tell you, we've been facing a lot of federal vision people Mm. um, and some discussions. And we get what's happening is there's a lot of proponents of federal vision talking to gals in our group. We have a Facebook group with over 4,000 women and one of the things that keeps coming up over and over again in regards to baptism specifically is that the federal vision proponents will say that their view of baptism, which says that the child is united to Christ is, is just what the Westminster catechism says when it answers, what is baptism. And just for those who aren't familiar the, from the Westminster Catechism, it says, Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost does signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Can you explain how that is not what the Federal Vision believers are um, confessing?
1: Uh- Sure. Uh, the, the Westminster Divines never intended to say, nor did they say, that, that uh, baptism necessarily, by virtue of its administration, uh, affects what it signifies. Uh, and, and here's what's happening. The federal visionists, when they come to talk about covenant and baptism and so forth, they have collapsed, uh, uh, effectively, the decree into the administration. And, and so they've made, uh, they have a kind of a two-fold system. And they don't explain that, um, you know, the, you have to sort of do a lot of digging and reading and, and come to understand what it is they're actually saying. And, and so they've collapsed the two, thing and, uh, two things, uh, and they make baptism do what it was never intended to do. That is, uh, they make baptism the thing that it signifies. Uh, effectively, they've destroyed baptism. Right if, In other words, a sacrament is a sign and a seal of another thing. It isn't the thing itself. If it becomes the thing signified and sealed, it's not it's no longer the sacrament. If I have a wedding ring, the wedding ring is a sign of my marriage. It's not my marriage.
2: Right. If,
1: if the wedding ring became the marriage and I lost my wedding ring, then I lost my marriage. Well, that's crazy. I'm married whether I lose my ring or I don't the, the the flag of the United States is not the United States. If, if um, let's say some terrorists tore down the flag in front of my house, um, right? Uh, somehow they kept me from defending the flag and they tied up, tied me up and they tore the flag down. Have they destroyed the United States? No, they've destroyed the flag. And I've called the police and have them arrested and prosecuted them. All right. But, but they haven't destroyed the destroyed the united states when somebody administers baptism they haven't uh, by necessity right automatically as the roman communion says ex opera operato given what the sacrament signifies and seals that's a magical view of the sacrament and the westminster the westminster divines certainly did not believe that that uh, baptism necessarily gives uh, what it signifies and seals yeah, and so you, you you can't change the meaning of terms. not you, but they cannot change the meaning of terms. Baptism is a sacrament. Well, what's a sacrament? They've already said it's a holy ordinance in 92, the Shorter Catechism, instituted uh, by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are, now watch this, represented, sealed, and applied to whom? believers, not to the baptized. And they always do this. They cheat. They change the meaning of terms. They, 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 um, they turn, for example, in the Canons of Dort, uh, 117, they turn uh, pious or, or believing uh, Christians into professing Christians. They, you can't change the terms of what we confess, and they do that here. So given the definition of sacrament in 92, you have to bear that in mind when they get to 94 and you get to talking about baptism. It's a sacrament, right? So we have to bear in mind what we learned in 92 and bring that to bear in 94, wherein uh, the washing with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit does signify and seal our, who's, who is our, that's believers, engrafting in into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace in our engagement to be the Lord's. So the background to what we confess uh, in the Shorter Catechism and in the Heidelberg Catechism and elsewhere uh, is the distinction that the Federal Visionists explicitly dis- reject in the joint Federal Vision Statement of 2007. And that's the distinction between an inward uh, relationship to the covenant of grace, a spiritual relation to the covenant of grace, and an external or outward relation to the covenant of grace. We've always said that there are two ways of relating to the covenant of grace, outward and inward. And this is based on Paul's teaching in Romans 2 and in um, Romans 9, that a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, or not all Israel is Israel. There always been two ways of relating to the visible covenant community, and the federal visionists reject that, and they read that rejection into our documents. Um, So it's, you you, you know, it's very sneaky in a way. It's certainly very confused, but if we read what we confess in the original context, and we pay attention uh, to what we say ahead of time and and afterward, then, then of course, it all becomes clear.
0: Hmm. It's sort of jumping off of this, not necessarily explicitly about federal vision, but I, you know, I've received some questions from ladies in our group at times um, about First Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And the question that I get asked is, you know, we have friends who are observing baptism debates that happen and um, they will observe a Presbyterian argument that comes from this verse. And sometimes it it even just comes in the form of just saying baptism now saves you done. (laughs) That's the whole argument. And so um, the question that I get is, okay, What is the Presbyterian argument that's being made with that verse? Because certainly what we believe about what that verse means would be different than the Catholic view or even the Lutheran view. So what is it? What is the argument that we are making from that verse? Are we just trolling the Baptists here?
1: (laughs) No, um, uh what peter is saying here in in again in, and i i was just trying to find an article there's an article about this um because well, that's true for a lot of things but there's an article about this very uh, passage uh on the heidelblog at heidelblog.net h e i d e d e l b l o g ATL. And we
0: can we can link that in our show notes, too. Yeah.
1: So. Idleblog.net. And uh, if you look for the commentary under the resources or under the categories uh, on the First and Second Peter, you'll see uh, an exposition of, of that passage. Uh, Peter is not saying that baptism saved or that the floodwaters saved anyone. So you have to go back and, and understand what's taking place uh, in the flood. All right. So, uh Who who was saved in the flood? Well, Noah and his family, right? How were they saved? Did the water save uh, Noah and his family? No, the the water didn't save them. Christ saved them. Mm -hmm. They were saved through, that is, in the midst of the water, but not by means of the water. Uh, The water was a judgment. It was death. It was condemnation, right? Um, So the, the water itself didn't save them. God saved them. So again, you have to pay attention to what Peter's actually doing and, and saying here, uh, and because his bro- his broader point is to say, essentially, and this is why uh, I call my commentary as yet unpublished on First and Second <laughs> Peter, uh, as it was in the days of Noah. Right? And because that's really, I think, what unifies Peter's argument. He's saying, we are in the same circumstances as Noah. Right? We're proclaiming the coming judgment. We're we are proclaiming a covenant of grace that, that God has made. We're proclaiming salvation in Christ. And uh, as it was in the days of Noah, some people listened and some people don't. Most people don't. And uh, so as, as our Lord said, Uh, um, You know, as it was in the days of Noah, two people were working and the flood came, uh, you know, and and took them uh, away. Well, you don't want to be taken, right? You want to be left behind. And and so the the whole left behind thing is completely backwards because they have it that you want to be left. uh, You want to be taken, not left behind. Well, no, in Noah, to be taken is to be destroyed. And so he says, so will be when the Son of Man comes. Two will be working, one will be taken, and one will be left. You don't want to be taken, you want to be left. And uh, and that's essentially the same image that Peter is using here. He's saying, "Listen, uh, uh, you know, when the the floodwaters came, right?" And and he's, it's a difficult passage just ahead of that because he's saying, and people miss this all the time. But going back to verse eighteen, this is First Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and to do what that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the and it should be a capital S, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made his body alive. And then the Greek grammar is actually quite clear. English translations, not so much. Verse 19, in whom, that is in the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, is the subject of the verb, went. Uh, when and where? Well, he proclaimed to the spirits, probably lowercase s, meaning just meaning persons who were metaphorically in prison, because they did not formally obey. You say, well, where did you get all that? Well, look at the second part of verse 20 when he clarifies. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You get that? Mm -hmm. Okay. While, right, when? While the ark was being prepared. So whenever Jesus went, it was when the ark was being prepared. And that's where Jesus went. He went in the Spirit. So by the Holy Spirit, he was preaching through Noah, in effect, uh, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, not by water, but through the judgment waters. And then he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And he adds, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is sacramental language. The water didn't save anyone. Baptism doesn't it, uh, itself save anyone. It's a sacrament. It's a sign of what God does for those who believe. That's all that's being said here. And, and look, what he, how do we know that? But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and who is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to Him. He's just talking about faith. He's talking about being saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, and baptism in that sense saves us, not the application of water, but a good conscience. Right, and and he doesn't even say that baptism creates the good conscience. He's already talked about, uh, and you can't read First Peter three as if First Peter one doesn't exist. Right, you have to read the whole thing uh, together. You have to read First Peter three in light of First Peter one and two, and it's clear there that. God is electing His people. He's giving grace unconditionally. He's granting faith through faith in Christ, and through that, saving His people. And baptism is is just a way of illustrating that. And and the the flood is a way of illustrating that. That's it, it's it's uh, it's challenging, but it's not impossible. And certainly, uh, it doesn't say what what uh, some are trying to make it say.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the things we wanted to do is give some of the common objections that we hear on baptism and have you respond to them because we tend to see the same things when these discussions come up a lot one of them is the first one baptizing babies is just a tradition left over from the roman catholic church baptists have simply reformed all the way
1: yeah uh, uh, that argument just is ignorant of the history of the church um, the, the, had the Protestant reformers thought that baptism was a remnant of popery, and again, there's nothing new about this argument. This is the argument that the Anabaptists made against the Reformed in the in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So this is not a new argument. This is an old argument. And the Reformed responded by saying, "Nonsense and poppycock. We're doing this because we're convicted that this is the biblical practice." And again, I've an, I've answered this, um, and you, you you'll see the resource page. Uh, there's a, On the Heidel blog, there's a resource page uh, on the covenant theology and infant baptism, and there's an article that, that addresses this directly. But the history is quite to the contrary. Uh, the Reformed defended baptism principally on the basis of the Word of God and not on the basis of tradition. Now, it is the, the case that it was the universal Christian practice, as far as anybody knows— Uh, going all the way back certainly to 250 AD. And there's, I think, reasonably strong evidence for a practice. uh, In fact, we know there's uh, evidence for the practice of baptism going back to the early third century. And then in the second century, it gets a little more difficult. I think there's some argument, some evidence for it, but it would probably wouldn't convince a Baptist, but, but any reasonable Baptist should admit that since the early third century, we've been baptizing infants and, uh, And as we did that, it was not controversial. In other words, it's not like there was a change. Had there been a change from believer's baptism to infant baptism, it would have been hugely controversial. Um, One of the biggest controversies, I always remind people of this, that one of the biggest controversies in the early church in the first quarter of the second century, so from 100 to 125, was when to celebrate Easter. It nearly split the church. And one of the great teachers of the church, Polycarp, was on one side, and other teachers were on another side of this. Um, so if the, if when to celebrate Easter nearly split the church, how much greater would the argument have been from, you know, over moving from believer's baptism to infant baptism? And yet there's not a shred of evidence that I have seen that, it, that there's any controversy over it in, in the early third century. So it is the ancient practice of the church. It's the universal practice of the church. Um, But that's not why we do it. We do it because it's in Scripture. That's certainly why I uh, baptized my infants and why I believe in infant baptism. I started out as a Baptist, and the reason I gave up the Baptist view is because it doesn't uh, adequately account for what Scripture says.
0: Mm. Um, You have just given me a fantastic lead-in to the next um, objection we want to talk about. Um, I hear this all the time. Um, from Baptists, in all of God's Word, you never see infant baptism mentioned, suggested, or commanded. Give me chapter and verse.
1: Uh, uh, absolutely. Every time there's a command to baptize, there's a command. It, it, it means baptize infants. Uh, I, ne- I don't ever see any uh, chapter or verse commanding only believers' baptism. Again, this that objection is a classic case of begging the question, and begging the question means assuming what has to be proved. Um, so when God, when Abraham, or sorry, when Peter says to the Jewish men at Pentecost for the promises to you and to your children, that hardly means. Well, we used to include children in the visible covenant community, but we don't do that anymore.
0: And is it true that we even have to have a specific chapter and verse, or can we use good and necessary consequence?
1: Well, that's right. I mean. Uh, uh, the the assumption is, again, this is sheer presumption and question begging uh, uh, that we have to have an explicit command because it assumes that the burden of proof is on uh, those who believe in continuity as opposed to discontinuity. So when did God exclude children? Show me that from Scripture. Show me explicitly from Scripture where God ex- excludes covenant children, and he, you can't do it. Um, So I admit that infant baptism is a matter of inference, but I also think Baptists need to be honest, and most of them, I think, are, who are, you know, professional, responsible scholars would say it's a matter of inference. And so that's why the debate is so heated, because you have two groups of people drawing inferences from Scripture and then arguing over those inferences.
2: I look at my... Um, By the way, we're going to link that you have the curriculum for those wrestling through covenant theology and infant baptism, which we're going to link and highly recommend where you can hear about this in great more detail in the Heidelcast series, I Will Be a God to You and Your Children. Half of my family or my dad's family is Jewish and many of them Orthodox and even Hasidic. And I've actually looked at them and thought about what you were just talking about a lot because I see everything that all of their practices in regards to the covenant community in their understanding. And I think about how, if that had changed, that you would think that there would have been that spelled out.
1: Well, Um, I mean, I think that's important because the assumption, the Baptist assumption is that discontinuity is normative rather than continuity. And, And this gets back to the relationship between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic. In every Baptist I've ever talked to, maybe except one, um, the the assumption is that Moses and Abraham are essentially the same thing. I've even had Baptists tell me in recent years that the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of works, hmm. which I think is, you know, I can't say how much I object to that or how strongly I disagree with that, uh, but it does illustrate the difference between a Baptist reading of Scripture and a Reformed reading of Scripture. Uh, but but uh, is, when somebody... Uh, recognizes that the abrahamic covenant is one thing and the mosaic is another right once you've made that distinction then i think a lot of things become clear and so this is what my i challenge my baptist friends to think about have you really meditated on the reality of the promise that god made to uh, uh, to um, abraham and to his children i will be a god to you and to your children genesis 17 7 And my experience is that most Baptists have never really given serious consideration to the Abrahamic covenant because they simply assume that Abraham is just like Moses, and we're done with Moses, and we're done with Abraham. And if that's not true, if we are done with Moses, amen, but we're not done with Abraham, then everything is different. Where did God do away with the Abrahamic covenant? Well, certainly not when he said in, in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of all believers. He's the father of Gentile believers because he believed before he was circumcised. He's the father of Jewish believers because uh, he believed after he was circumcised. That's a terrible way to get rid of Abraham, right? Uh, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, John eight fifty six. I mean, all through Scripture uh, in the New Testament, Abraham remains the paradigm of the believer and of the new covenant believer. So when we think about the new covenant, we cannot set it up so that it's no longer Abrahamic because that's a serious mistake.
2: Well, one of the ones that we hear a lot too, and I think you kind of talked about this a little bit already is that infant baptism was an invention. No one baptized babies in the early church. And I think you referred a little bit to the history of that.
1: Yeah, they certainly did baptize infants in the early church. Uh, we know, for example, that Tertullian, who's an interesting, difficult uh, figure, brilliant figure, uh, thought maybe uh, we ought not to baptize infants. So we know, how, how how could he be objecting to infant baptism in the very early third century if nobody's doing it? So that doesn't make any sense. Uh, we know that Origen, very early in the second in the third century, uh, acknowledges the existence of infant baptism. And Cyprian was uh, 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 requiring it in 250 AD. And Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, said that that was the universal apostolic practice uh, of the Christian church. So anybody who tells you that we weren't baptizing infants in the ancient church simply doesn't know the history of the church, hasn't read the fathers, and and doesn't know the facts. Uh, So it's, it's not a medieval invention. It's something that certainly as a church historical matter was going on um, for hundreds of years before the medieval church.
0: What do we say um, when Baptists object by saying that infants are not capable of faith?
1: So what? <laughs> that, again, that, that's the wrong premise. The point of baptism uh, isn't to recognize faith. It's to recognize the promise of God. mm mm-hmm. Right. It, because, they again, Baptists don't typically understand, in my experience, there are exceptions, but in broad terms, most Baptists with whom I've spoken don't understand the difference between the sign of initiation and the sign of renewal. Baptism is the sign of initiation into the visible covenant community. It's not necessarily the confirmation that somebody believes. It's the recognition that they are eligible to be admitted to the visible covenant community. Mm-hmm. Again, you can't assume the Baptist view of the church— you have to prove the Baptist view of the church, right? And again, this gets to the distinction between an external relationship and an internal relationship, right? And so the Lord's Supper is the sign of covenant renewal. And that's the sign of profession of faith. Baptism is not the sign of profession of faith. That's the role of the Lord's Supper. That's why in many Baptist congregations, the only sign that really matters is baptism. And the Lord's Supper kind of withers on the vine because it basically has already, the function that it plays has been replaced by their view of baptism. In our view, baptism is like circumcision, the initiation, and the supper, in a sense, is like the feasts, not just Passover, but all the feasts, the sign of renewal of the promise. That's when the believer says, this is for me. What was signified in my baptism is true of me. I've received these promises by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and, and now I want to be admitted to the table as a believer. And so we have to distinguish between the two signs and the, and the function. And so we, as I just as in the case of Abraham, we initiate into the visible covenant community by means of an outward sign of those who are hitherto unbaptized and their children. And uh, as I say, this is the practice you see reflected in Acts 16, Um, and it it was typified for us uh, in the crossing of the Red Sea. And again, that's not my hypothesis. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. His whole point in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, is to say to the Corinthians, listen, the Israelites, they had baptism. They were all baptized into Moses, and they had the Lord's Supper. They had the manna and so forth. And and then he goes on to say, and don't be like the... the, 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 um, don't be like the Israelites. But his whole point is they had baptism in the Lord's Supper, just like you do. And, and so in, in drawing that continuity, we can hardly miss the implication that um, they had infant baptism, as it were, or infant initiation, and they had a profession of faith at the Lord's table, just as we do. That's the point of the parallel. You can't you know, The parallel doesn't work if you change the terms.
2: Okay. So I have one more for you. And, and that is sprinkling isn't baptism. Uh, sure it
1: is. If, um, if you want to be immersed in Old Testament terms, you're identifying, with your, you're identifying yourself with, uh, if, if one insists on immersion as the only mode of administration, then you're saying, in effect, uh, I'm with everybody but Noah, or I'm with the Egyptians. The two great examples of immersion in the Hebrew Bible are the flood and the Red Sea. And there are lots of examples of um, of sprinkling, both in the in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So that, no, it's not, I mean, s- technically, strictly speaking, uh, we don't insist on uh, one mode or the other. Uh, but uh, I, now just speaking personally, I'm quite convinced that sprinkling or effusion is the more correct um, uh, matter. I mean, baptism, Uh, Baptizo can uh, and does sometimes mean a ritual sprinkling. So again, we can't just assume these things. Uh, We have to actually look at the evidence.
2: Well, we really appreciate you joining us. I think you answered a lot of the questions that we get, and we're going to put lots of links in the episode notes. And anyone who's trying to understand this, I highly recommend listening to the series I Will Be a God to You and Your Children, which will link and some other resources that Dr. Clark has on baptism. Is there any books that you would recommend? Um, well, there.
1: Are, yeah. Again, you could look at the resource page on those who are uh, just discovering covenant theology. I think the book by Mike Brown and Zach Keel, Sacred Bond, is a great introduction to covenant theology, because the problem isn't really baptism. It's covenant theology. D- does mm-hmm. the listener really understand uh, the nature of the unity of the covenant of grace? You know, one covenant of grace with multiple administrations. But one other thing I'd like to say and I think might help the listener, and that is this. These are difficult questions uh, that, that I've been working on for more than 30 years, almost 40 years. And so, you know, I rattle off all these things and it might blow past your ears and you might have to go back and listen to this again and, and maybe look some things up, slow it down or pause it or whatever. I, I get that. Um, uh, but the biggest thing, I think, that the Baptist listener, you know, and, and dear brother sister, I, I love you. And I've been where you are. I, I get your concerns. And, um, and so I want you to know that. But I also want you to know that, that it's a different paradigm. You can't just assume the Baptist paradigm and then from that paradigm judge the Reformed paradigm. Uh, so it's not like, well, I'm Reformed. I just disagree on baptism. If No, you're not Reformed. You're a Baptist. And that's a different thing. And it has different assumptions, uh, different context, different way of reading scripture, different reading of redemptive history. And so uh, you need to understand that. And you need to understand that changing paradigms is very difficult um, and it takes a long time and it can be painful. There's even a sense of grief and loss uh, as you give up you know, convictions that you've held for a long time because you're driven to it by scripture. So I want you to understand that. So I I don't mean to sound glib when we go through these problems and issues. I I get very much how difficult it is. And so I don't want the listener to underestimate how challenging it is to work through these things.
2: Yeah, it took my husband and I a few years of wrestling through a lot of this. And he went from Lutheran to Baptist. So especially difficult for him. And, And Angela's just recently... A Presbyterian and her children were recently baptized. <laughs>
0: Yay. Actually, reforming was fast for us. <laughs> um, but uh I read There's a lot. always one in every group. It was easy for me. <laughs> well, right. um you know, <laughs> I was going to say because I read the Heidel blog and listened to your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um yeah, I, It's it's Exactly. As you said, um, you really, it's maybe the only time I'm going to say you need to clear your mind before you start. Um, don't, don't come to the table, assuming your, your position that you're coming from. Definitely great advice. You
1: have, you have to be ready. If you're not ready to rethink what you believe, then, then don't mm-hmm. even do it.
0: And I think that's why it was so fast for my family, because we were rethinking just a whole host of things. And the truth is that confessional reformed theology provided answers that were really good answers that we had never been provided before. And um it's just amazing how that paradigm, suddenly all kinds of passages of scripture started to make sense, just on, on the face of it, first reading it would just make sense. Oh, I never understood this before. And now I do. And so, and that is as much as leaving something behind is a difficult feeling. That feeling of now I understand is an amazing feeling.
1: Yeah, no, it is. Um, So yeah. Amen. Amen.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all the resources that you um, share.
2: Sure.
1: Happy to do it. Thanks. uh, Thanks for having me.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us and anyone, anything that we've mentioned on this episode, you can find in the episode notes. We'll see you next week.